You follow as I read. I'm going to start reading at verse 33, and I'm going to read to the end of the chapter of Matthew chapter 21. Another uh, in the uh, list of parables that Jesus tells. It goes like this. Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the rebuilders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priest and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it endures forever. You know, guys, what, I, what I'm finding in, in my study of the parables is that they say a whole lot more than I, than I, than I knew they said. And what they say is, is um, often more weighty than what I had originally thought. It's, it's like being told that you have pneumonia when you really thought you only had a bad cold. Let me put it like this. When it comes to these parables, more often than not, they're about pneumonia, not a, not a bad cold. This morning's parable is, is kind of a good example of that. Um, we saw this conflict that um, erupted, well, it's been going on for some time, but we saw it uh, erupt last week in that previous parable, this conflict between Jesus and, and Israel's unbelief. And, and that conflict that, that you see unfolding here is not simply a conflict of, it's not like a cold war, it's not like a benign indifference. Uh, no, no. This, this opponent of Jesus's is, is much worse off. He's at enmity. He's, he's an enemy. 
Now, now why do you say that, Jimmy? That's, that's so severe. Well, I say that, ladies and gentlemen, because, because I think the parable demands that I say that. And that's all fine and dandy until we realize, guys, that this, um, this war that I just said exists is continuing today. It's, um, it's the unbeliever versus God. It's the same war. Now, folks, um, if you're here this morning and you're not yet redeemed, I, I realize that you don't agree with that. Um, you say something like, um, well, I'm not a Christian, but I'm not at war with God. You know, I hear that a lot. Um, and really, making a statement like I've made um, really just confirms in the mind of the unbelieving world things that they already believe about the Christian church. They, they, they already believe that we're... we're that we're intolerant and uh, judgmental and, and even a bit dangerous. So for somebody like me to come and say um, that the unbeliever and God is at war, that they're enemies, is just confirming some of the things they already believe. You know, but I, um, I, I, I make a statement in my wedding ceremonies that, that evokes that same kind of response. You know, people like, and I've told you this before, but people pretty much like my weddings. Um, but there's something in it. There's, there's one little piece in my wedding ceremonies that they simply do not like. And it's a place where I say um, that if you're outside of Christ, you're an enemy of God. They don't like that. Well, guys, um, don't take my word for it. Um, how about Jonathan Edwards? Does that name ring a bell? Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards lived in the 18th century. He, um, he's considered probably the finest philosopher and religious thinker that America has ever produced. Actually, I'm, I'm not so sure we should limit it to America. But, but Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon uh, one time on Romans chapter 5, verse 10. Now, Romans chapter 5, verse 10 is the verse on which I base my statement that I include in my weddings that if you're outside of Christ, you're an enemy, enemy of God. Could I read it to you? Just, this is just one verse. Romans chapter 5, verse 10, which says this. Um, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Did you hear that, that first part? For if while we were enemies... You know, when, um, when most of us preach this, this text, um, we, we would like to concentrate on that, on that good part, on that second part where it talks about we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Um, Jonathan Edwards didn't do that in his sermon. He didn't do that because he understood that before we could really understand being reconciled to God that he mentions in the second part of that verse... That we had to understand the first part of the verse. The first part of the verse that says, when we were enemies. Uh, before you can appreciate the second part of the verse, you've got to understand the first part. Um, I, I want to read you just a couple of snatches. They're not long. I want to read you from his sermon, Jonathan Edwards' sermon, 
On, on Romans chapter 5, verse 10, <laughs> the title of the sermon was, Men Naturally Are God's Enemies. And um, this is what he says. Um, they entertain, that is, the, the non-Christian man entertains, very low and contemptible thoughts of God. Whatever honor and respect they may pretend and make a show of toward God, if their practice be examined, it will show that they certainly look upon him as a being that is but little to be regarded. The language of their hearts is, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? What is the Almighty that we should serve him? And what profit should we have if we pray unto him? They count him worthy neither to be loved nor feared. And then in, in, in Edwards' sermon, he goes on. He goes on and lists four attributes that the, that the, the, the non-Christian world despise about God. His omniscience, his omnipotence, his holiness, and his immutability. I'm going to read you just another little, it's just five or six sentences. It's not long, but here's what he says as he continues in his sermon. He says, they hear God is infinitely holy, pure, righteous being, and they, and they do not like him upon this account. They have no relish of such qualifications. They take no delight in contemplating them. And on account of their distaste of these perfections, they dislike all other attributes of his. They have greater aversion to him because he is omniscient and knows all things and because his omniscience is a holy omniscience. They are not pleased that he is omnipotent and can do whatever he pleases because it is a holy omnipotence. They are enemies even to his mercy because it is a holy mercy. They do not like his immutability because by this he never will be otherwise than he is an infinitely holy God. Now, guys, don't take Jonathan Edwards' words for it. Don't take mine. But tell me, what would you say is going on in this parable? Tell me, what, if you had to describe the relationship that exists between the tenants and the owner... How would you describe it? For instance, uh, look at the, the, the text. It says, verse 36, um, verse 35. And the tenants took his servants, beat one, killed another, and stoned another. And then verse 36. So he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. And then in verse 39. And they took him, that is the son, and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Now, guys, um, what would you call that relationship? Would you say they're a bit antisocial? Would you say those, those tenants are impolite? Or rude? Or would you say they're, they're a bit cool towards the owner? Um, they beat... They killed and they stoned. What would you call that? Would you say, well, those guys are unfriendly. <laughs> now, guys, remember, Jesus is the one that is speaking this parable. He's the one that is giving this picture, giving us this picture. Not Jonathan Edwards, not Jimmy Young. 
It is Jesus that is giving us this picture. And tell me, what do you think he is trying to describe? What word would you use to summarize what you've just read about the tenant's relationship to the owners or to the owner? Would you say they're unfriendly? Um, by the way, don't, don't forget this. This is just the second part of Jesus' response to that very impudent, contemptuous question of verse 23 when they asked him, who gave you the authority to do all these things that you're doing? This is what part of his reply to that. Now, all I'm asking, guys, is Jesus is speaking a parable to us. The players are an owner, his servants, his son, and, his, and the tenants. And there's a relationship there. And it's being described in this parable. What one word do you think adequately expresses an accurate description of the relationship that exists between the owner and the tenants. Jesus is speaking to, to unbelieving Israel. And he's describing the relationship that exists between God and Israel. By the way, he's not only speaking to Israel. He's speaking to Israel and to everybody else whose, responses is, whose response is like Israel's. And I ask you again. What word do you think applies? I use the word enemy. Jonathan Edward uses the word enemy. Paul uses the word enemy. But every time I use it in a wedding ceremony, somebody says, well, I don't, I'm not a Christian, but I'm no enemy of God's. Guys, uh, this is a parable about pneumonia. Not a bad cold. It's about pneumonia, or even worse. You know, it's a it's a pretty simple. I mean, if you're if you were if you're reading it one morning over your coffee and and you were trying to figure out who these players are, it's pretty simple, really. And, and I, I, I really I don't think think you I need me to tell you um, the owner. Who's that? Well, that's God. Um, the servants, hmm. um, Old Testament prophets, the son, easy, Jesus, the tenants. Israel and everybody who responds like Israel. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a parable about an owner who had a, a vineyard and who hired a bunch of people to tend his vineyard. 
They're called tenants in this parable. And, and one of the things that I don't want you to miss in the parable is verse 33. The, the opening parable, excuse me, the opening verse of the parable, because it says that the owner of the vineyard did everything that he could possibly do to make this relationship work. You notice he planted the vineyard, not the tenants. Tenants didn't plant it. And then from after planting it, he went and built a fence around it. The tenants didn't build that fence. No, the owner did. And then he dug a wine press. You know what that was for? At harvest time, they took the grapes in there and they pressed them into wine, you know? It's the owner that did that. And then he built a tower so that they could, you know, observe their vineyard and how it was going, uh, you know, from an elevated position, you know? The owner did all that. The owner did everything conceivable to make the relationship work. And all the while, the tenants mistreat the, the owner's servants, and then they kill them. And then he sends some more, and they kill them, according to this parable. And then they get together, and they say, mm, okay, we hear the sun's coming. Let's kill him. It's in verse 39. Let's kill him, and then this inheritance will be ours. What would you say that is? You know, I, I can tell you one thing that the parable does. It, it tells us that Israel's history is written in the blood of the martyrs, of God's martyrs, all the way to the New Testament when Stephen is stoned in Acts chapter 7. But I would suggest to you, ladies and gentlemen, that on display in this parable are two things. The unreasonableness of man and the reasonableness of God. Let's take a look first at the unreasonableness of man. First of all, is it clear to everyone that the tenants don't own the vineyard? Everybody got that. Um, they, are, they are tenants. They're not owners. But man in his natural state, in his unsaved state, in his unregenerate state, whatever word you want to use, wants to have no owner but self. In fact, um, the tenants, they want to be the owner. They want to be in the place of the owner. Um, or they, um, they want what belongs to the owner. Doesn't that just kind of rile you? I mean, don't you see that in your own existence? I mean, you know, yeah, that, that, they just want to take over what, what was mine. You know, uh, you, you worked hard for 20 years to get that corner office, and now they, they hire the upstart from, um, from junior college, and, and, and junior college graduate wants your office. Why? The very idea. Well, this is far worse. These are tenants, but they want to be owners. Um, men want what is God's and they have been wanting it ever since Genesis chapter three, when Satan told them you can be like God, he can't stand it that the owner is in charge because he wants to be in charge, but to get to that place where I could be in charge. 
The owner has to go. We got to get rid of him, the owner. We want him out. How much more evil do you want to talk about, ladies and gentlemen, than that? You see, the issue in this parable is not a bad cold. The issue is pneumonia or worse. Guys, that's what self-righteousness is. Self-righteousness is inserting me where God should be. Where, Where I'm the owner and there's nothing else above me. That's why we call it Self-righteousness. It's when I try to save myself. Because I don't want anybody talking to me about needing someone else to save me. I, um, I, I want to I save myself by my own self-salvation method. And, and that method will, will vary from person to person, but ultimately, those, every self-salvation project of, um, of the Mormons, of, the, of Islam, of, of uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, of Protestants in Germantown, the self-salvation project may vary, But they're all alike in saying, I don't need a savior. I can save myself. I I don't want you, God. Um, I don't want you to be over me. And so, be gone. What would you call that? Would you call that friendship? You know, and I think what's even worse about this whole picture that you get in this parable is that in verse 38, um, when they're, let us kill him and have his inheritance, they, they, they put together a plot that they think is going to work. That's what sin does. It so blinds us. It, it, it blinds us in spite of all that the owner had done for us. You remember he planted, it was his vineyard. He built the fence and he dug the wine press and he built the tower. In spite of all those kind things to make sure that this relationship went well. Um, I don't like him. And so he leased out his vineyard. um, But he never granted rights of ownership. And then he shows up. At, uh, at harvest time, at, you know, when the rent comes due, and because he's looking for fruit. Do you think that that is unreasonable? I mean, isn't, isn't it reasonable that the owner of the vineyard who planted and did all that Could could have some fruit out of that. 
God expects, or the owner expects some fruit. Is that unreasonable? The owner expects fruit because he, because he, he, in his mind, in the mind of the owner, anything that's fruitless is worthless. And by the way, that's exactly what Jesus taught them in verses 17 through 20. You remember last week there was this, this incident, this eerie incident of the fig tree. Jesus comes to the fig tree and he doesn't find any fruit. And so he curses the fig tree and the, the fig tree withers right before their eyes. And they're wondering, what the devil did this guy do that for? Here's why he did it. Because this parable tells us that what happened to that fig tree is about to happen to Israel for the exact same reason. There's no fruit. There's no gratitude. There's no, there's no devotion. There's no love. There's no, there's no worship. All he finds is a determined zeal to be the owner. You see, guys, uh, that's the nature of this war that I've been talking about. God is the owner, but I want to be the owner so that I can have that. I got to get rid of him. My friend, if you're one of those who have said to me over the course of 40 years of my ministry that, that I don't, I'm not a Christian, but I'm not at war with God. This parable tells you differently. Jesus told this parable. And then, in a stroke of abject genius, I mean, of course, every one of these parables have a stroke of abject genius. I guess I can say that every time. But we come to verses 40 and 41. And, and guys... Um, look at verse 39 with me real quick. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. That is, Jesus has just given them a glimpse of the heinousness of what they are about to do to him at Calvary. And in a matter of days, this parable will literally be played out. He's saying in verse 39 to his listeners, here is what you are about to do to me. And then in verse 40, he says, When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? He asks them, What do you think the owner ought to do to those tenants? And, and ladies and gentlemen, unbelievably, they answer him. They say, those tenants, they're a bunch of wretches and they should be put to a miserable death. And by their so doing, they have put the noose around their own necks. They have, 
They have passed sentence on themselves. They have chosen their, their, their own punishment. They have announced their own verdict. Uh, those wretches, miserable death, and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Because the demand of the owner to have fruits in the seasons is a very reasonable demand. Did Israel bring forth fruits in their seasons? They did the exact opposite. After centuries of God sending warnings and invitations to repent via the prophets. And these guys, all they wanted to do is enjoy what God gave. He, uh, all they wanted was what God, what was God's to be theirs. What would you call them? Chums? The parable calls them wretches. And then in verse 43, Jesus says, therefore. You know, guys, you've been around here enough. I've said this probably 300 times, but whenever you see a therefore, you know you're about to get to the application. Um, As a result of that warfare, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. Therefore, says Jesus... The reasonable God condemns the unreasonable man. The long-suffering God comes to the end of his patience. And then, ladies and gentlemen, almost comically, a few, I don't know how long, but just in a matter of three or four minutes, maybe less, we're told in verse 45... That the chief priests and the Pharisees heard the parables and they perceived that he was talking about them. And they, they nudge each other and they say, fellas, fellas, <laughs> fellas, he's talking about us. And as they walk away on their way home, away from the skirmish, what do you think they're thinking? They're thinking... Well, we've cooked our own goose. We better back. We better go back over to that fellow and apologize to him. Could I show you what they were thinking? Within forty-eight hours, it's in Matthew twenty-six. Within forty-eight hours, ladies and gentlemen, the same group of people that are mentioned in verse twenty-three. The chief priests and the elders, this is chapter 26, verse 3. The same chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth 
and kill him. Within 48 hours of Jesus telling them this, instead of saying, oh my goodness, we better get over there and apologize to him, they have a meeting. And the meeting is designed to form a plot by st- so that by stealth they can arrest Jesus and kill him. Just like it says in verse 38. And then, in a matter of another 48 hours, they do arrest him. And they do kill him. Just like it is said in verse 39. You know, guys, in the midst of all this spiritual anarchy, and I want you to miss this, because the parable tells us That all of this that's going on will not defeat the purposes of God. In fact, look at verse 42. This was the Lord's doing. (laughs) Can you believe that? What is it that's the Lord's doing? Listen to me. What is it that the Lord is up to? What is it that's the Lord's doing? Well... It was the Lord's doing that they killed his son. And listen, he was killed so that forgiveness could be offered to people who had once hated him. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the miraculous beauty of this thing that we call the gospel. To think that a God whose son my sin helped murder is willing to forgive me and call me his son no matter how wicked I have been in my past. That, ladies and gentlemen, is why Christians call grace amazing. That all of this hatred, all of this offense, all of this rejection, all of this murder, is so that his son would be put to death so that he could offer forgiveness to the ones who put him to death. Is that good enough news for you? There's more. We're told in verse 41 that Israel will go. Israel's got to go. But verse 41 tells us that God will get other tenants. Do you know who those other tenants are? 
Gentiles. Us. You and me. We're the ones who now tend his vineyard. We're the ones whom the owner, from whom the owner expects fruit. And do you know what he did? He has made every provision imaginable, imaginable so that we, his people, might live lives that will bear fruit, that will bring him glory. He has given us his word. He has given us the indwelling of his spirit. He has given us his people. All so that you and I might bear fruit to his glory. All of those things, gifts of his grace. And for us who have been born of the Spirit, bearing fruit comes naturally. But my dear friend, if you are here not yet redeemed, you need to know this. You are far more wicked than you ever imagined. And you are far more loved than you ever dared hope. Come to Christ. Heavenly Father, I do pray that you will use these parables to remind us of the, um, of the beauty of the gospel, of the things that you have done such that you might make forgiveness available to people as wicked as I am. People who once hated you. People who once did everything they could to rid themselves of you. And I, um, people who flaunted your law. People who knew your law and yet flaunted it. Like me. And I pray, Lord, that you will uh, open the eyes of some hearing today to see, number one, that this, which they thought was benign indifference, is not. It is open hostility. And that the hostility might be changed into sonship because of seeing the great beauty of what Christ has accomplished. We commit ourselves, O oh God, to the broadcast of that forgiveness which is full and free and rich. Might that offer of the gospel be taken by someone today. And we ask it in Jesus' name.